want to start off just by telling you a little bit about, uh, I told you a little bit about myself, um, well, a couple minutes yesterday, but um, so my name is Jason Andrews. I've been up here about five years. Uh, I'm currently the, the director of programming for Hume, which basically means I'm uh, not only doing adult ministries, but also helping out with our youth uh, camps, both here and then also in New England and in Southern California. Um, my wife and I were in local church ministry down in Southern California from 93 until 2017, the 22 years of that being at the same church. And we had come to Hume, had just learned to love this place. We had been coming every summer since 93. Um, I came here for the first time as a senior uh, or after my senior year in 1989 and uh, came up with my girlfriend. And uh, it was really funny because I knew no one from her church. We'd been dating for like two months and I was just confident that this was the one, right? Yeah, it's a typical high school relationship. And so we come up on the bus and, and unload here, and uh, she breaks up with me before the opener on the first night of camp on the rock outside of Ponderosa Chapel on the other side that will be here forever. Cause, <laughs> and, and so a forever, you know, symbol of the loss of love in, in high school. And I had a terrible week at Hume, terrible, swore I would never come back to this place. And... Uh, God has a funny sense of humor. In 93, I got a church and a job in Irvine and uh, started in June. And where do they go in July? Hume Lake for summer camp. And I was hooked and just grew to love this place. And uh, so I've been coming up here many, many, many years. My wife and I have two sons, uh, Caleb and Brady. Caleb is 23, lives down in uh, Brea, works at a flooring store, a commercial flooring store, and does installs and stuff like that. And my younger son, Brady, is, works up here at Hume, and he's a videographer, so you'll see him around um, videoing and getting in your guys' faces as you're riding Jeeps or shooting shotguns and that kind of stuff, so give him a hard time. Is he the one going around the worship last night? No, no, that's, he, uh, he's up with the band, but Brady, my son, he went and saw a movie last night instead of coming to the seminar, so yeah. So yeah. <laughs> um, so my wife and I, Tiffany, we've been married for 20, 28 and a half years. And um, I don't know about you guys who might be married, and maybe you just kind of nailed the marriage thing from day one. Um, I was really great day one, uh, but by about day 24, uh, a lot of my old patterns and habits came out. And I grew up in a home where my parents loved each other. They loved us well, took us to church, uh, were involved in our lives. So it wasn't some sort of crazy, weird, broken home story. But they had a lot of dysfunction in their marriage. And there was many, many times that I could remember my mom, you know, crying in the bathroom, my dad's in his work truck peeling off down the road, and, you know, my brother and I are there to kind of help put the pieces back together. And it's very much kind of like a, she would say, wait till your dad gets home, and then he'd come home and find out who he had to spank and why, and then he'd, you know, belt would come off, and the chase would begin. And, you know, it was just, <laughs> there was a lot, of, a lot of dysfunction. And now it's just so fun because I have such a sweet relationship with my dad and, and mom, and and things are so much different in their family. But there was a lot of dysfunction in our upbringing. My wife literally stepped out of the 1950s, like the Cleavers, or like just like these perfect TV Huxtable family, you know, thing where slippers at the door, uh, the thing, and, and just this great, perfect relationship in many ways between her dad and her mom. But her mom passed away when she was 15. And so um, we came into marriage on different pages. Um, the important thing about her mom dying when she was 15 was that her mom died of breast cancer, and, um, and it was one of these things that 
then because she had a, a parent who, who died of this, she was always kind of along these watch lists for early cancer detection and stuff like that. Um, are you guys getting hot? Is it starting to heat up in here? Are you guys good? So, good? Okay, just want to make sure that's not gonna, we're not going to start melting in here. Um, I say all this because part of the story that I'm going to talk about this morning comes from what God allowed us to go through at about year 10 in our marriage, or actually a little bit later than that, uh, in my wife's battle with cancer. And so um, she was, she, we found out that she had cancer, my wife, at the same age that her mom was diagnosed, and her mom died within two years. Um, and so it was, a, it was a crazy moment in our lives as we found out that my wife had cancer, and then as we went through this journey, everything that could have been a yes was a no. Like every test that could have been positive was negative, or any time there was the uh, like, well, well if, it's, if it's this, then we only have to do this. And it was like, nope, it's not that. And those of you who've gone through this, either yourself or with a spouse or a loved one, you know about how those tests begin to unfold and the prognosis and, and surgeries. And so this was a, a, a crazy year for us. But God was merciful to us in that as I came into marriage and was very selfish and had, um, I don't know, some really cruddy beliefs about what a husband should be, and um, God was so good to us to really grow us in years five through 10 or 11 and prepare us for this. And we didn't know that he was preparing us for this. But in the middle of this process, God, I think, revealed to us some things that aren't this morning, I think, going to be things that you go, oh, my gosh, I never thought about that before. I've never, ever heard that. Like, of course, if I'm inventing new things that you've never heard, they probably aren't biblical, I mean, I, I just, I, I don't think that too many brand new points of discovery are being found. It's more about reinforcing those things that maybe we know to be true, saying them in a different way. But God revealing some stuff to us that really showed us, I think, beyond just our circumstance and my wife's journey with cancer, but showed us how do we as individuals, as believers, either as single people or as married people, kids, adults, it doesn't really matter, how do we thrive in our relationship with Christ in the midst of difficult times. And so that's where we're going to go this morning. And I, I, um, I, there's, there's five things and really kind of like four and a half things. And so if you're taking notes, you can take notes or you can go back and listen to this seminar again at some point. Um, but th these are the things that I want, I want to share with you. And so as humans, we, can, um, we have lots of issues, right? <laughs> I mean, just this morning I made the mistake. I was telling the guys at my table, I should have read the Bible this morning, but I read the news instead, which was way worse for my soul just way worse. Uh, the, the, the things on my news feed just making my stomach churn from um, capital punishment cases to student loan arguments in the Supreme Court to Russia to all these like other things. I just, I was like, that was not a good way to start my morning. I don't know why I did it. But, but, the, but the world's messed up. Humans, we have lots of, lots of issues. And if we're honest, we can be pretty, um, I'd say pretty lame sometimes. <laughs> we don't take the commands of God seriously. We, um, we're lazy. Uh, sin drives us from obedience. Sin causes us to create false gods uh, that we worship in our lives that draw us away and destroy our ability to live as God desires. We can go on and on. And, but I think all of these things have their root in a really common place. And that's this idea that we we can fall into the trap of believing that we are the point, that we are the point. And so, like, my first thing that I want to communicate to you guys is that you're not the point. You're, you're, you're not the point. The whole grand scheme of what God is doing 
does not revolve around you. Your job's not the point. Your marriage isn't the point. Your kids aren't the point. Your relationships are the point. Like, you're, you're not the point. I, I, I think sometimes we fall into this trap of believing that God's greatest desire is our comfort. That God's greatest desire is our happiness. That God's greatest desire is that we live the lives that we think we should be deserving to live. But that's not biblical. I mean, how many times have you guys heard a sentence start off with someone saying, I don't think that God would really want... How often does that sentence end biblically? Like, never. (laughs) I don't think that God would want me to go through difficult times. I don't think that God would want me to not be happy. I don't think that God would want me to have to, you know, this, and it's never biblical. It's always very self-focused because when we begin to invent what we think God wants and not follow what scripture says, it goes sideways. So this isn't just something that I think that, that I've, I've made up. Let me, let me share with you some scripture. So James 4, 13 through 15, and I'll, I'll, I'll quote some and then I'll, we'll read some together. Uh, James 4, 13 to 15, I love it. James is saying, like, come now, those of you who say, um, tomorrow we'll do this. We'll go to this city. We'll do this. We'll build this. We'll eat this. We'll construct this. We'll do this. He's like, you, you ridiculous people. <laughs> Don't you know that your life is just a, a vapor, right? Those of you who think you can control what's coming up. Or Psalm 144, what is man, O Lord, that you should even think about him? He's like a breath. His days are a passing shadow. Or Isaiah 40, all flesh is like grass. And what happens to the grass? The grass withers, the flower fades, but it's the word of the Lord that endures forever. So there's this kind of common trend here. And then Acts 17, turn to Acts 17 if you've got your Bibles. Uh, In Acts 17, Paul is speaking to uh, some folks gathered in Athens, and he's standing at a place called the Areopagus, and he's noticing that they're worshiping all sorts of different gods in Athens. And he's like, man, you're very religious. I even noticed that you worship uh, an idol made to a, uh, an unknown god. And so what they were trying to do is like, well, we know about this god, we know about this god, we know about this god, we know about this god. This one's for crops, this one's for fertility, this one's for money, this one's for this, this one's for power, this one's for enemies. You know, and, and then there's, we want to make sure we don't miss any. We don't want to offend anybody, so we're going to create this unknown God just in case there's another God out there that we've been actually offending, and we don't want to offend, so we're going to cover all that. So Paul's like, interesting. So he says, men of Athens, verse 22, I perceive that in every way you're religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. And he says, what you therefore worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul's like, you're right. You are missing one. Let me tell you what the missing one is. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Life and breath and everything. The message is loud and clear. God's the point. God is the point. We humans, it's not meant to, to demean you. It's not meant to belittle you. It's not meant to knock down the fact that you're made in the image of God and that are formed and crafted by his hands. But in comparison, humans are like the grass that withers. We're like a vapor. We're like a mist. Uh, in comparison to God, who is the point, who does not need anything. I, I think of this illustration um, 
So I love movies. I just, I was, I just watched a movie trailer this morning for a new Tom Hanks movie coming out this year. And, and then I saw the trailer for Creed 3, which love me a good boxing movie. And so Creed 3 is coming out. Like, and I'm all like jazzed up. I'm like, oh, I, love, I love movies. And I've kind of missed movies during this whole kind of COVID time. Um, so picture a, a friend of yours who is like trying to break into Hollywood, super excited, and, and is like, you know, he's doing like the toilet paper commercials, and uh, he's, you know, he's like an extra in this or whatever, and then finally you get a call, he's like, I made it, I broke through, I'm in Hollywood, like, let's go, and so he invites everyone over for the pre-screening, and, you know, rents out a theater or whatever, just picture, like, just, just decorated to the nines, everything, got refreshments, the big screen, right, and you watch the movie, and you're like, that was a really good movie, and your friend's like, what'd you think, and you're like, that was really good, I just don't, remember seeing you and he's like what like don't rewind the film he's yelling up to the projectionist or whatever like dialing in it's like okay watch this part again and there's this like chase scene and the the bad guy and the good guy they're running through the mall and they're running through the food court and knocking tables over you've seen stuff like that right and then he pauses it again like what'd you think and you're like yeah still not quite tracking with and then he like you know and shows the still right he's like there I am. And it's like this man holding a coffee cup sideways view on the screen for like a millisecond. And then he's like, there I am. And then you're like, you're man holding coffee, right? You've seen those in the credits, right? Man holding coffee. Man holding coffee is not the star of the show. It's not the, it's not the point of the movie. And we would feel pretty sad for that person. We'd actually feel a little like, like oh, hmm. You're, you're cute, but like that movie's not about you, and you're kind of disillusioned. And I can't help but imagine that sometimes God looks at us and goes, oh, hmm, you're cute. You thought you were the point. <laughs> you thought the movie was about you. It's not. It's not. You're, you're, you're not even man-holding cup. You're like the cup. You're, you're just, and again, it's not to demean you. It's not to lessen your value. It's to show the comparison of, in the whole scope of what's going on, this world's not about you. You're not the point. And as my wife and I really kind of leaned into this in the midst of, of, of our trials and difficulties, and, and I'll, I'll never forget, oh, uh, it's so, so many stories I could tell from that period of time, but some of the most difficult times that we were going through how comforting it was to read about the sovereignty of God, how comforting it was to realize that our, our um, plans for how we think we should go, we're, we're not the point of what God is trying to accomplish. And it's so freeing. It's so freeing to remove yourself from the center because then everything stops being about you, which means that when things happen to you that are difficult or hard, Everything that happens in the world is not in like an attack against you. So like when I'm driving up the hill, uh, we call this the hill. I don't know why. It's a mountain, but we call it the hill. And I'm behind someone going slow. I go all sorts of bad places in my head. I mean, that person is directly attacking me. Like they are doing it on purpose against me. It is a sin against my very character. And when they don't pull out at the slow turns, very obvious signs the whole way up, slow traffic, please turn out. And, and I'll get it right up on the tail. Like, it's the worst. I, I don't even want any Hume stickers on my car. I just, it's, it's, and, and because I have put myself at the center. That person's thoughts, concerns, fear of the road, car troubles, whatever it is, none of that matters. 
they don't matter at all to me. I matter. And in that moment, I have placed myself at the center. And in and, and the times when I've come up the hill and the Lord has said, you're going to learn a lesson today. <laughs> and I'll see 19 cars and four motorhomes ahead of me. And I just know this is going to be one of those trips. Do you know what? I, I, end up, I, I end up cranking up the music. I roll the windows down. And I have a really good time driving four miles an hour up the road. <laughs> it, it, is, it is freeing. Because I just, like, I have to remember, Jason, you're not the point. We are not the point. It's about the Lord. So we have to start there, and we need to teach this to kids early. Our society is growing up with a very me-centered focus, and we need to get ourselves out of the center. Okay, secondly, knowing God is the key to loving him and being able to trust him in the midst of difficult circumstances. So we say that again. Knowing God is the key to being able to trust him and and. And, and love him and find joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. So in, in the, my church ministry that I was in for so many years before this, I just knew so many people who claimed to know God. But when push came to shove, when their comfort was on the line or when difficult times came, what was revealed is that they actually don't know really who God is. They don't know his character. They don't understand uh, aspects of who he is, which then makes trusting and loving him very difficult when the bottom drops out. And so I think you guys can intuitively know what I mean, but let me, let me give you some verses to kind of back this up a little bit. And these are the things that we need to fill our minds with more and more of who he is and what's true about him because you and I can agree there are mysteries about God that we can't understand, right? I'm hoping you're nodding because otherwise I want to talk to you later. I have some questions. Um, but there are mysteries about God that we will never understand. There are things about his character that are difficult for us, and so we have to fall back on what we know to be true. And we know this from all of our relationships. There's going to be people in your lives where you're like, you know these things to be true about them, but then something happens that just seems out of character, and so you're like, huh, I don't really get that, but let me go back to what I do know and understand that this thing that I don't understand is probably just something that I, I need to figure out or I need some more understanding. Now it's getting cold, isn't it? It's like crazy turning temperatures here. Yeah. Um, so we could talk about so many things about God's character. But let me focus on a few. When we talk about his, omnip uh, his omnipresence, his transcendence, the fact that he's infinite, that he's truth, that he's loving, let's look at three things real quickly. First of all, God's eternal. So, eternal. I don't know if you've ever thought about that for a while and then just stopped thinking about it because your mind just got totally bent. You just can't understand it. I remember when I was in elementary school, vividly I could remember the bathroom facility for the boys. You'd walk into this large kind of room and there was all the sinks on either side Mirrors, mirrors, sinks, sinks, and then the urinals and the stalls were in the back. But the, the side to side thing was a trip because there was like the three sinks and mirrors, three sinks and mirrors, and the reflection would just go back and forth. And, and like it was the coolest thing because you'd see yourself just and then because of the imperfections in the glass, it would slowly kind of tunnel down this like what I thought was eternal. <laughs> that was my concept of eternity, the back and forth, back and forth, and then eventually, you, so you could kind of wave and see yourself, and then it would eventually just start to fade out, and then we would try to count how many times it went back and forth, and then we'd all just, like, quit, because even that small concept, it was probably only, like, 70 times back and forth before it lost, but that was my view of eternity, something that I could not even begin to grasp how long it is, and when you think about a thousand years as, you know, just like that to the Lord, it's crazy, but God's eternality means that he has always existed, he always will be. His nature is without beginning or end. His attributes have always existed. 
and always will. Which means that as he deals with us, he has eternity in mind. So he doesn't just have our daily circumstances in mind. That's what we have. Maybe we have plans for next week or the week after, or month from now. But God has eternity in mind as he deals with us. Psalm 90 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. A thousand years are like a watch in the night to you, O Lord. His promises are eternal. His salvation is eternal. His plans are eternal. And so this is what he has in mind as he deals with us. We don't, we don't see the entire picture, right? I mean, I even just look at Chris, Chris Sending. I mean, how easy would it be for someone on the outside to look at Chris and say, oh, man, that guy, that poor guy. I mean, like, he can't, can't speak well, can't walk well. Like, what, what, what a tragedy. But then when you know him, you're like, oh, no, 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 no. So far from tragedy. So far. Because God has eternity in mind. God has bigger things in mind than just what we can see right on the outside of what he's doing in people's lives. He is eternal. He is also omnipotent. So which means whatever plans that he has, these plans that have eternity in mind, he has the power to carry them out. No one in human history has ever been able to say this. People say, like, I do what I want. No, you actually don't. You, you don't. You, you think you do what you want, and you do some things according to your wills and desires, but no one has ever truly been able to do whatever they wanted to, unless they had very, 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 very small aspirations. But like, I want to teleport, right? I want to, does anybody else want to teleport? With like, Dad, that would be awesome. Up the, I'd, up the hill around the traffic. Up the hill around the traffic in my car, right? Like, I, I would, I mean, I would like to be able to, to walk without back pain, but I can't do that. Like, uh, there, we, we can't do whatever we want. Only God is omnipotent. But more than being eternal and omnipotent, he's also sovereign, which means that he doesn't just have the ability to do whatever he wants. He has the right and authority to do whatever he wants. His sovereignty means that he uh, possesses supreme and ultimate power. If he wants it to happen, it happens because he is allowed to. Psalm 115.3, I love this verse, but it also terrifies me. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. Think about that verse. How about that being on a coffee cup? Psalm 115.3. Our Lord is in the heavens, our God is in the heavens, and he does as he pleases. I mean, put it on a coffee cup. I just, that, that would be so great. It's not exactly warm fuzzy, but it is true of his character. I love this illustration in Jeremiah 18. And again, it, this isn't meant to, to knock us down as people, as humans, but it's meant to put us in our place, our proper place. Jeremiah 18. Uh, God calls Jeremiah to be a prophet. He's going to bring words of destruction, imminent destruction upon the people. Kayla, can you bump up the heat just a little bit before it starts to get a little too cold in here? Um, so God says, Jeremiah, I understand you're having struggles with the prophecy that I told you to do. So why don't you do this? Go down to the house of the potter. I want to show you something. So Jeremiah in 18 goes down to the house of the potter and he watches the potter form up something on his wheel, and, uh, which I always thought would be so cool to be a potter. Like, anybody else? Did anybody ever do it? Like, have you? That's awesome. I made an ashtray for my parents in, like, kindergarten who don't smoke. Um, I think it was supposed to be a cup, but it ended up being an ashtray. My teacher was very confused at the little Christian school I went to why I was making an ashtray. But anyway, I, I, I digress. They still have it, which is awesome. <laughs> um, so, so the potter makes something up, and then it, the text says that the, the clay became spoiled in his hands, and so then the potter crushes it back down again and reshapes it into something else. 
And Jeremiah is like, cool, God, thank you for, for that. What does that mean? And the Lord says, and I'm going to paraphrase a little bit. Um, I'm the potter, and I do what I want with the clay. Like, that's what, that's what he says. If I say to someone, bring uh, words of judgment upon a people, and then those people repent, then I'll relent and, and bring, bring blessing on them. Or if I say, hey, you're destined for blessing, and then they turn for me, I'm going to be like, well, then I'm bringing judgment on you. Like, I, I build up, I tear down, I, I reform, I shape, I do whatever I want to do with the clay. Like, that's the point. And Paul talks about this in Romans and says, how ridiculous would it be for the clay to rise up against the potter and speak out against the potter for what the potter is doing, right? It'd be like a, a kid playing with Play-Doh, and in your worst fear, imagination, like the Play-Doh begins to just, like, talk to you. Like, I don't want to be that. I want to be this. You know, you're just, that's crazy, right? It'd be ridiculous. And again, this isn't meant to be like, you're nothing. You're worthless. You have no value. It's to put us in that perspective of God is the one. We are clay in his hands. He is sovereign. Now, that may seem terrifying, but going back to my point here, unless you know him. Because when God begins to push and mold and shape and crush and rebuild into something that we think we should all be the most incredible, beautiful vase. And God's like, no, actually, I do need you to be the ashtray. And no, 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 God, no, no, no. I'm the, I'm the awesome vase. I'm the one with the beautiful handle and all this kind of stuff. Belongs in palaces. And God's like, no, actually, you're the, you're the water bowl for the, for the, the animals who need water, and that's going to be your purpose. And, and and, and again, it's like, no, God, I, I think I should be something different. And that's ridiculous. God is the one who shapes us. And it can be a terrifying process unless we know him. Unless we know and believe what the psalmist says about the, him in Psalm 100 or 107 or 118. Give thanks, Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Or John 10, when Jesus says, the thief has come to kill and steal and destroy. But I have come that you may have life to the fullest like, unless we know and believe these things about his character. Look at Psalm 145 with me. If you've got your Bibles, turn over to Psalm 145. It is this amazing testament to the goodness of God. Psalm 145, and, and we could have picked out one of dozens and dozens of psalms. But here's what David says. I will extol you, my God and King. I bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless, shall, shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power and make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is everlasting. Like, it just keeps going. All these truths about who God is. And this has to be where we go in difficult times. It has to be. 
Otherwise, we will construct our own view of what God should be doing or what God shouldn't be doing, and we'll make those statements like, well, I just don't think that God, I just don't think that God would want me to be going through this. I don't think that God would want me to be stuck in a relationship where I'm not happy. I don't think God would want me to, to be working at a place where this is this. I don't think God would want, like, where do you get that from? Because that's not what Scripture says about who God is. We have to go back to what Scripture actually says about the Lord and not hold him to promises that he's never made. Because when we hold God to promises that he's never made, we will only be frustrated, disappointment, uh, like just moping all around. We'll become the center of the universe. And we'll be like, God, why didn't you, why didn't you heal my mom and my mother? Well, I, it's not actually a promise of the Lord that your mom would get healed. Why didn't, you, why didn't you cause my boss to, to say yes to that raise? Or why didn't you say yes to the loan approval? Why didn't you say yes? Or why, didn't, why, why did I get in a car accident? And God's like, yeah, um, I never promised that one. I never, never promised that one. I never promised that one. And I didn't promise that one. It's like we can't hold him to things that he's never said to be true. We've got to go back to what we know to be true about him. So I, I told you I was a youth pastor for a lot of years at a church. And um, our, our Sundays would start early. We'd get to church at 6.30 or 7 o'clock and be preparing some things, getting ready. We'd all kind of help, and, you know, every church has donuts you got to put out. And so we're, like, putting the donuts out or making the coffee or whatever. And so then church would start, first service, second service, and there'd be meetings afterwards. And so I'd roll back in sometime around 12.30 or 1 or 1.30 sometimes. And I remember coming back. It was kind of a particularly late day. I think I'd been at church for eight or nine hours, and I came home, and I was hungry, hadn't eaten. I had avoided the—I uh, would make these terrible choices with my food, like— AM, PM was on the way home. And I would just be like, so many times, I'm just going to get a drink. And maybe one of those nasty double cheeseburgers. From the, you know what I'm talking about, the AM, PM, you know, things that you're shaking your head like, I can't believe you did it. Like, so, and I didn't do it. I didn't. But I came home and I was hungry. And I open up the door into the downstairs living room. And the first thing I see was this styrofoam tray that once held ground beef with still the faint red, bright red, kind of like the meat juice there. And, and it was kind of tipped up sideways, leaning against the side of the wall as I began to open up the door. And I thought, oh, no. And I opened the door, and the entire downstairs living room is covered with the contents of a very overfull kitchen trash bag. And there in the middle of it is my golden retriever, Abby, fat and happy and dumb, wagging her tail, stupid dog, just had torn up the entire, like golden retrievers, awesome dogs, but dang, when they go sideways, they go, this dog sitting in the middle of all this, just stuff everywhere. Now, Tiffany is home, and my boys are home, and I come in, and I see all this, and my first thought was, I cannot believe she left this for me. I cannot believe that she knew that I had been at church all morning, serving the Lord, <laughs> working for Jesus, right? And she's upstairs, probably watching football, drinking a Coke. My boys are probably playing video games, and they left this for me. And I just went from zero to a million in that fast, like Hulk mode, right? Just like, Rrr. and I just, ball of rage, yell out, Tiffany! <laughs> and then, as I'm about to make the next sentence, the Lord goes, hey, stupid, why don't you shut it? <laughs> and just the Holy Spirit like paused me for a second, and in just a, a microsecond of brain processing, I thought, 
this is not my wife. She would not do this. Like, there is no way that my wife would just be, would walk in the door and go, <laughs> sucks for Jason, and then just, like, get the Coke and go upstairs. My boys totally would have. Like, my boys absolutely would have been like, well, we didn't see anything. Uh. <laughs> but in that millisecond of processing, the Lord said, is this the character of your wife? And it was like, No. And so then in that just half second, I said, you know, Tiffany. And then I'm like, you wouldn't believe what Abby did. And then she comes downstairs and goes, oh my gosh, I've been upstairs for five minutes. Like, how did this happen? Like, right. And so we laughed and we cleaned it up and threw the dog outside and, you know, that thing, right. <laughs> but, but here's the thing. That only was able to happen because at that point we'd been married for 20 plus years and I had gotten to know her character. Because if I didn't know her character, it may be completely rational to think that this person did this to me. Because I just like the person on the road in front of me, right? Like who's doing it to, to get me, <laughs> driving slow just to make me angry. And I don't know anything about them or their life situation or their character or their car or their driving habits or their fear level. Or I don't know any of that stuff. But it doesn't matter because at that moment I've placed myself in the center of the universe. And I almost did that to my, to my dear, sweet wife. But then the Lord said, this is not her character. In the midst of difficult times, if we don't know the Lord, we will not be able to trust him or find joy or press into him in the midst of difficult times because we're just going to go to what we imagine to be true rather than what we know to be true about God. Okay, I belabored that point long enough. So we're not the point, and then knowing God is the key to loving and trusting him in the midst of difficult circumstances. Third, um, and we'll go kind of quick through these, true joy is found in Christ not in our circumstances. So true joy is found in Christ, not in our circumstances. And this was so important for Tiffany and I. I, I, I can just remember, I'll share one of those stories a little bit later, but um, as, as we went through, I, I remember <laughs> she had had her first of, of what ended up being four surgeries, and she was home, and um, the, the boys wanted to come in and see her, and she had, like it was, my mother-in-law had the kids, and I said, let me get Tiffany home. Let me get her put into bed. And I, I kind of want to like, I, I don't want the boys to come in and see her like this. And so, um, and some of you, you know, you know where I'm coming from with this. And so we got her into bed. We kind of propped her up and, and, you know, kind of combed her hair off the side and stuff. And so the boys could come in and they come in, they start crying when they see her and I'm crying and all these different things. I'm just watching my family just weeping and just going, this is, God, how can you do this? Like, right? Uh, why would, God, I'm sure God doesn't want us to be going through this. And, and my, my wife, someone in the church had made for her a book of prayers and, and Bible verses. And the common theme in almost all the Bible verses was about finding our joy in Christ and not in our circumstances. And it was something that the Lord began to kind of just whisper to us over and over through those days and months. And I love this truth because it means that the greatest source of our joy cannot be taken from us. It, it means that no matter what life brings, we may have incredibly difficult seasons, but our ultimate joy cannot be stolen or removed. Psalm 1611 tells us that in his presence there is joy at his right hand. There's fullness of joy. And his, at his right hand are pleasures evermore. Like, think about that. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. Not a shadow of joy, but the fullness of joy and pleasures evermore. It's such good news. First Peter uh, one tells us this, and if you're a believer, and go ahead and turn there. 
Uh, I think this is one of those passages that we need to really kind of commit to living in and breathing in on a consistent basis. So 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's start in verse 3. Blessed be, and again, so if you're a believer, these words are true of you. If you've given your life to Christ, if you've received this gift of salvation and, and have participated in this in the most unfair exchange in human history where we get clothed in the righteousness of Christ and he gets our filthy, sinful rag robes, right? And he takes our sin upon himself and gives us his righteousness. And in this great exchange, we are reconciled with the Father. This is what's true of you. Listen to the words of Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Again, these are all things that he has done. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so that's all great news, right? This is all done by Christ. And in him, all these things are accomplished. But then it keeps going. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this is what we've been given in Christ, is this inheritance and this protection and this seal. And, and, and it's enough, you guys, it's enough. If, if all we ever received from Christ was just what we see in these five verses, it's enough. He is our prize. The prize isn't that better days are ahead. The prize isn't that, that we, um, we get, get Christ and his righteousness and he gets our sin and the wrath of God and, and then we also get all these other things to make our lives better. That's not the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that we get him and, and that he's enough. It's not that he makes our circumstances easy, but that he becomes enough for us. And we need to preach this to ourselves regularly. We, we have hope not because something good is coming around the corner. Right? We don't hope because we know that it'll get better someday. No, we hope because hope has a name, and his name is Christ, and, and it's better. He's better than anything that we can possibly go through. I, I think it's such a shame for us to speak to another believer and to say, who's going through difficult times, and say, don't worry, you know, God's got this, and he's going he's gonna to turn this around, and you'll see things will get better, things will get easier. Things will... That's nowhere in Scripture. God does have this, but the sentence doesn't finish with, then he's going to make things better for you, or things are going to get easier, or that person's going to get healed, or you'll get your job back, or the economy will come back, and your, all your retirement savings will magically reappear again. Like, that's, that's nowhere in Scripture. Scripture says we get him, and he is enough. This haunted my wife for a long time when her mom died, and she actually turned her back on the Lord and ran from him and said, this is the kind of God that takes my mom away. I don't want anything to do with this God. And I think what it revealed in her is that he, she, her, her understanding of the Lord, and again, she was 15, and she was still learning, but her understanding of God was that God was the one that kind of helped make things good, and that when things aren't good, then God must not be present. 
And so again, it goes back to point number two. We've got to know him in the midst of difficult times so that we can have joy. And so I think the question is, where are you finding your ultimate joy? Is your ultimate joy in the things that God has done for you or in, the, or in who God is in his character and his nature? True joy, not being found in our circumstances, but being found in Christ and in Christ alone. And again, all these three things combined. So you removing yourself from the center, you pressing into him, growing in your knowledge of him, and then understanding that your joy is not in your circumstances. Because if your joy is in your circumstances, they can be taken away just so easily. But the scripture talks about a joy that cannot be taken away, that a peace that cannot be taken away, that a comfort in the spirit that cannot be taken away regardless of our circumstances. And I'm not saying it's easy. Believe me, my story of of watching my wife go through cancer um, probably pales in comparison with what you've maybe seen in your lives. I remember the very first time I, I gave this talk, my wife and I actually gave it together in 2018 at a marriage retreat. And I had a guy come up to me afterwards and tell me that his wife and two kids were killed in a car accident. And I'm like, you should be teaching this seminar, not me. Um, and, and, I, and, I, and I never want to try to make it seem like we've gone through such great tragedy. But look at how strong we are now. Like, it's not, it's not that. These points, I think, are universal to teach us how to deal with any sort of difficulty whether mild on the scale of, of terribleness or, or really, really difficult and terrible. Because they're, they're, they're coming from Scripture. They're birthed from just a correct theology in who God is and finding joy in our circumstances and finding joy in the giver of the gifts, not in the gifts themselves, because the gifts fade. The gifts can go away. The gifts are, are temporal, very much like human beings who are compared to grass, grass and puffs of air. Fourth, every circumstance in life can be an opportunity to worship. And I'll say that again, and I need to say it to myself again, that every circumstance in life can be an opportunity to worship. Now, this does not sit well naturally to us. That is not our natural bent. Just this uh, last week, we were going through some, some difficulty <laughs> with our college son, right, about his grades. He's doing online school and we were getting on him, and it was just this, this again, just kind of Hulk moment where I went from zero to 60 super fast and, and just kind of had this, like, well, fine, and I've been ready, sit down. And then I worshiped. <laughs> nope. <laughs> not at all. Like, right? I, I just, that is not a natural human reaction for me, that when I go through difficult times, my first instinct is to worship. And 30 minutes after we had received the news of cancer and we left the hospital and we were hungry and we um, went and sat in the corner booth of Subway and uh, tried to eat sandwiches and we're just sitting in the corner booth of Subway just, just weeping, uh, waiting for my turkey sandwich or whatever, just kind of falling apart. Again, I didn't go to worship. That's not where I, I went. When um, I found out last year that my dad uh, has, has, has a form of cancer and, and, and early onset like Alzheimer's, like I didn't worship. That wasn't my first thought. So this is not something that comes naturally. It's something that we need to grow in. We need to practice. We need to pursue. We need to preach to ourselves the gospel over and over again to put us in this mindset. Um, and, and, and again, all these things that happen in our lives, we have to fight against these natural tendencies to go to a selfish 
or, or poor theology place. So I, I, I don't know if you are familiar with the story of Job. I think probably most of you are. We won't, for time's sake, get into reading it. But the first chapter of Job kind of goes something like this. Um, I don't understand this first scene. But apparently, the Lord is like hanging out. And he's, he's, he's gathered some of his like angels together. And Satan shows up, right? And is like hanging out. It's very weird. And God's like, what's going on, Satan? You seen Job? He's pretty awesome. And, Satan, and Satan's like, and I'm totally paraphrasing, this is a very butchered version. But Satan's like, yeah, Job's pretty awesome. Hey, he's got a pretty awesome life, though, you got to admit. A lot of things going well for him. He's wealthy, got all the kids, got all that stuff. He goes, I, I, I'm just kind of thinking that if he didn't have all that stuff, he may not really worship you. And God's like, hmm, interesting. Game on. And, and now if Job could have been watching all this, Job would have been like, whoa, no, guys, totally fine. Like, I'm totally good. Don't need to prove a point with me. Like, just, just take me out of the equation. And Satan's like, really? And God's like, yeah, I'm going to show you Job's faithfulness. Do, he basically says, do whatever you want to him. Just don't touch him. It's, it's frightening. I, I pray that the Lord, like, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm trying to keep the bar low here so God never makes an example of me, right? Like, this is terrifying. And so the story goes that, like, everything starts to happen terribly. All of his oxen are destroyed. His cows are destroyed. The, the walls fall in, and all of his children are killed. And each time, only one servant is able to escape back. And so all these things happen. And Job, in a matter of moments, as the text seems to show, he has lost everything in his life and has his health, and has his wife and his wife's health and nothing else. Everything's gone. <laughs> and then so it says that Job falls to his knees, tears his clothes, and worships. And it's like, what just happened? How, how is it that Job was able to worship? Now, Job was not a perfect man. And then we read the next 33 chapters. We can see that pretty easily as he begins to let these knucklehead guys come in and try to help him through his crisis. And it isn't until the end when the Lord kind of sets him straight. But we see in Job this desire to, even in the midst of these difficult circumstances, he begins to worship. And I, and I don't believe that this is just a one-off. I don't think this is just like, oh, well, Job, you know, pfft. he's the, the one example. No, we see this all throughout Scripture that we're called to worship him in the midst of difficult circumstances because here's, this, here's the thing. The difficult circumstances are not surprising to the Lord. They're not outside of his sovereignty or his omnipotence. They don't come as like some sort of like, oh, shoot, I didn't plan for this. Try to, try to survive in this. Like, I hope you do well. No, these are part of what God knows is unfolding in human history. He is sovereign over all of them. And it's promised in Scripture that we will have difficult times. It's not like, oh, man, every once in a while something bad might happen to you. No, it's expect difficult times and rejoice in the midst of those. When people hurl insults at you or persecute you, especially when it's for my name's sake or when you go through these difficult trials, know that the testing of your faith is producing endurance and let endurance have its perfect work in you, right, that you may be complete and lacking in nothing. I mean, the trials and the difficulties of life are to be expected, 
And, and our response in the midst of those is to say, God, I know that you're in charge. I know that you're doing something. I don't see it right now. But I trust you, and therefore I worship. Because I know that you're doing something greater. Because what you have for me, the plans that you have for me, are not destructive. They're not for my, um, it's like to tear me down. They're, they are to build me up and to do something great. And again, that's not our hope, is that sometime something great may happen down the road because we may never see it. But God is at work in us. And just telling you that you need to worship in all things um, is more than that. He shows us this over and over again. So again, I, I quoted this earlier, but James 1, consider all joy when you encounter trials or meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So when your faith is tested, you're growing in your endurance and let endurance have its full effect that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. Or, or Paul in Romans 8, 38. It's one of the very first verses I memorized. I, I know John three sixteen. You guys probably did that one too. But Romans 8, 38, 39. What does Paul say? For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that list because Paul is like, he's going, okay, so neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present. He's like, and he's like, or any other created thing. Like, let's just, let's just, let's just go there. I could have probably just said that in the beginning. But nothing will separate you from the love of God. And so, again, we don't worship based on some sort of false promise or hope that we, we worship you, God, because we hope that things will get better. We worship you because we know that the pain I'm feeling right now will be turned into joy and comfort tomorrow. No, God may not choose to do that. The pain and suffering of today may lead to more pain and suffering tomorrow, which might lead to greater pain and suffering the next day, and then may end in, in death. Like, that's a terrible, like, sermon. But that's, that's, that could be true. Or God could turn the pain and suffering into joy and dancing. He could turn the mourning into dancing. We know that there will be a day when all the mourning will turn into dancing. But in our lives right now, we may not see that. And there may be no, quote-unquote, light at the end of the tunnel. And I'm not saying this to bum you out, I'm just saying these are not promises of God, that he promises you that every difficult circumstance, you'll get to see it turn into a rainbow. Like, that doesn't always happen, but it doesn't matter, because our hope isn't in what's to come. Our hope is in a person, and that person is Christ. And so we worship in the midst of those difficult times. Every circumstance, every circumstance is an opportunity to worship, because he is good. And so whether it's you, you're walking the lake or you're smelling fresh air for the first time in, in months or you're seeing the stars or you're uh, having a good conversation with a friend, um, those are all good blessings from God, common grace type blessings. Or whether you're walking through pain or difficulty or sorrow, all of them are opportunities to worship. So we, we take ourselves from the center. We, we are not the point. We, we get to know him so that in the midst of the difficult times, we can truly know who his character is. We find joy in, not in our circumstances, but in Christ alone. And we look at every opportunity as a time to worship. And then finally, just a kind of reminder, this is like my half point, like I said. And then we'll land the plane. The time to prepare for difficulty is not in the middle of difficulty. So uh, I think that's intuitive. Um, and some of you, if you've ever put on snow chains before, you know that the time to teach yourself how to put on snow chains is not on the side of the road in the middle of a blizzard, right? Just common sense, but 
I tell you this as a person who's driven up this road over 2,000 times. There is no common sense sometimes <laughs> to people who are thinking, let's go to the mountains. We know it's snowing, and we know that we don't know how to drive in the snow, and we don't know how to put on snow chains, but let's do it. And then they're on the side of the road, sideways, spun out, and they're, like, you see them, and they've, like, the, 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 the guy will be holding the chains like this, <laughs> and then the wife will be holding the little fold-out thing, doing this, and he's doing this, and you're like, oh, Lord, help them. Um, <laughs> I probably actually should stop and help them, but um, they, my sinfulness keeps me driving. But uh, it's probably should try to address that in my life at some point. Maybe this winter. Maybe this winter. But so I was going on a trip, and um, and my wife, like we we've got an all-wheel drive vehicle, and the roads are usually plowed. We we've only had to put on chains like two different times. But I'm like just in case because there's snow coming. Tiffany, we're going to go learn how to put on the chains. So we drive down to like a flat area, like down here below the chapel. There's no snow on the ground. And we're like, sweet, let's do this. And so I'm like, let's take them out of the box. This is what you do. You got to flip these this way, fling it around the back. You hook on the front. And so we did it on all four tires. And I did the first one for her. We did the second one together. She did the last two by herself. I'm like, you got this? Great. Because that's when you learn to put on chains. That, that is not in the middle of the snowstorm on the side of the road trying to flip out the instructions that have corroded over time and rust and water have destroyed them. Right? It is... It is not the time. The time to learn how to do it is, is before. Now, some of you are like, okay, you're way too late. I understand your illustration, but I'm in the middle of the blizzard, and the chains still have the zip tie, right? And I haven't even, I haven't even busted them out of the box yet. So I'm, I'm in serious trouble here. So yes, I understand that some of you have gone through immense difficulty already or are in the middle of it right now. So by no means am I saying that it's too late. But what I am saying is this. If you're in a place right now where you're like, man, things are, things are pretty good. I mean, yeah, COVID was rough. But like, I got a job, I got a house. Kids are healthy, wife's healthy, or you know, whatever it is, I'm, I'm in a good spot. Please, don't wait for things to start collapsing and then say, oh, I, I should probably get to know who God is. I should probably correct some of my poor theology about circumstances and joy. I should probably try to press into a deeper, ever-deepening relationship with Christ. That's, that's not the time because in the middle of difficulty and tragedy, what takes over is what's natural to you. So if what's natural to you is to become angry, you get angry. If what's natural is to become depressed, you get depressed. If it's just to lash out, if it's to ball up like a, like a little you know, bug back in its shell, you'll do all those things. What, what, what needs to be true is that the natural tendencies of your life get shifted over to something that is more beautiful and God-honoring and worshipful. I think Job had, had, had centered his life in such a place that when difficulty and tragedy came, the natural thing was to worship. And that may seem like a pipe dream. It may seem like there is no way we can ever get there. But I believe that through the sanctification process, as we become more and more like Christ, and less, we, we hate sin more and more, we begin to love the Lord more and more, our natural tendencies to selfishness and anger and all those things get replaced by what is a new natural tendency, which is to worship or find joy in Christ in the midst of circumstances. And we need to do that in advance. So like you don't make an evacuation plan when, when the place is on fire. Like, you don't practice earthquake drills when the earthquake's going. Like, again, we understand this. Um, we need to do the same thing 
and as we press into the Lord and read his word and seek him in prayer, we learn, I, I don't know if you've ever happened, this happened to you, um, you read a verse or a passage in the morning, and you're like, huh, okay, well, I spent time with the Lord, that was good, you know, and then you go about your day. And then like four or five days later, something happens, and you're like, that, that verse I read on Tuesday. And you're like going back, and you're like, oh, yeah, like that is so good. I needed that so much. You didn't need it on Tuesday, but boy, on Saturday you sure needed it. And that is how it works sometimes with the Lord, that as we press into him, we worship him, we spend time with him, or we have good conversations, or we study, whatever it is, it's not meant to just suffice for you for the moment that day. It's part of a process of rebuilding you from the inside out. And God doesn't promise that every time we get into his word, we're going to find immediate comfort for that situation right then, right now. But it begins to change us and transform us, and he uses his word in all sorts of circumstances throughout our lives. And I can't tell you how many times I've come back to something that I've read in the past or a verse that I memorized years ago. Well, I, I did this thing called Teen Missions where we'd have to memorize 40 different verses every summer, and, and, and they were in King James, so it's awesome. It's all these like yees and therefores and verilies and, and stuff like that from the King James. And, and they're in my head. They're locked in, just like 1980s songs or quotes from movies in the 90s. Like, they're just locked in there. And I'll come across a circumstance, and I don't know why, except by the work of the Lord, that, that, that word for word, this verse will come back into my head for the moment I needed it right then. Because, because that's God fulfilling his promise that the word does not go out in vain. And so we, we press into him knowing that we're, we're, our goal is to change our character and make our natural desires be less and less sinful and more and more the ones that God wants to see in us. And so to wrap this up, I want to remind you, every difficulty in life is in the hands of the potter. Like every difficulty in life is in the hands of the potter. And he, the potter, is not reckless. He's not finicky. He doesn't have mood swings. He doesn't uh, have temper tantrums. He doesn't have a lack of focus. He, he is the master craftsman who is not only has the ability to make whatever he wants, but he has the right and the authority to make everything he wants. And as he makes those things, he doesn't just have the next 10 minutes of your life or the next 10 months of your life in mind. He has eternity in mind. He knows how it all plays out. He knows everything about you. And you, you guys, man, he is for your good. He is for your joy. Not your, not your earthly, comfortable happiness. That's different than joy. A true joy that comes in who we are in Christ and the plans that he has for us. And I wish I could tell you that God is always going to reveal his plans to you and make you understand, because that would be great. Like, wouldn't that be? It'd be terrifying, but... If in the middle of difficult circumstances, God goes, hold on, hold on, don't get depressed, don't get depressed, let me show you what I'm doing, and you're like, oh, okay, I can see it, I can see it. That'd be extremely helpful for me. But that is, that is not a promise of God. There is a trust aspect where we have to know that he is making, creating, and crafting, and doing things that we can't see or understand. And that he is good, and he is for our joy and for his glory. He loves you. He loves you. And, and the, the aha moment isn't when we just say these words that God loves us. It's when we look at the whole of what he's done for us throughout all humanity. Look no further than the cross to see that evidence. 
that he is for our good. He's for the advancement of the gospel. He is never surprised or out of control. And so I can say this confidently and boldly, even though I haven't gone through many of the circumstances that you guys have gone through. And my story might be different than your story, and you may have a list of things to make mine look like nothing. But I can still say this confidently and boldly, that God loves you and he is for your joy and for his glory and the advancement of the gospel and his things that he's allowing to have in your life are not outside of his control. And that we can cling to the promises of scripture that nothing will separate us from his love. And, and, and if we can have the right mindset that nothing will separate us from his love, then, then there's nothing in this world that can touch us or harm us. And we have to get to that mindset that every single difficulty in life, whether brought on by the fact that our world is broken or brought on by the sins of others, or even brought on by your own sins. How many of you have been stuck in circumstances because of your own sins? Right? All those things God can and will use for his glory and for your joy if you submit to him. Every difficulty in life, they're all opportunities to see God work. And all the shaping that he allows and all the, uh, the things that he orchestrates, they flow from his character. He's good and he is loving. He's for you. And he'll work it out for the glory of his people. And so in the midst of these difficult times, and I can say this again confidently, it doesn't even matter the difficulty. It doesn't matter. The, 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 the routine is still the same. We take ourselves out of the center. We're not the point. God, you're the point. So what are you doing? If you're the point of this story, of this grand narrative, and not me, I'm just the man holding cup or the cup or the bottom of the cup or or whatever, or the elbow off scene. Like, it doesn't matter. I'm not the point you are. So we get to know him. We press in and we find joy in him. We worship in all circumstances. And I, I believe that we'll see God's faithfulness over and over again when we do those things. Let me pray for us. God, as we, um, as we head out of here, and again, I don't know what, what caused guys to come in this room, whether it was avoiding the, point, the porn seminar or, or because this resonated or because they needed a warm place to sit. I, I don't know what, what caused guys to come this morning, but I, I pray that you would have through your word, through things that you've done in my life, and, and I'm sure that resonate and echo with many of the guys in this room who probably could have done this seminar as well, that God, through these things, you would just have reminded us this morning, maybe of things that we already knew, but maybe seeing them in a little bit of a different light or with a different story or illustration, whatever it was, that you would turn us into men that first and foremost know our place. And we can do a lot of things in this world and you've given us gifts and talents and abilities and we can literally change the world. Lord, men who are passionately seeking you can do such incredible things. But again, through all that, we're not the point. You are the point. So Lord, would you let us realize our place in this grand scheme and then do everything we can with every fiber of our being to seek you and get to know you so that, Lord, when we are pressed, when we are crushed, when we are going through difficult times, what would squeeze out of us, what would flow out of us in those times that seem crushing would be this desire to bring you glory, to bring you uh, joy, to, to, to see others come to have a better understanding of the goodness of you and, and, and your, the strengths of your character rather than just us having a pity party for our difficult times. And God, that we would thrive in our relationship with you when we go through difficult times, not just survive, not just get through, 
but God, that we would thrive and this world would see something different in us. And like you say in, in Matthew, God, that our light would shine before men in such a way that they would see your good works. They would see you working through us and, and then they would glorify you because of those things, God. Let that be true in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.